The views, comments, stories, and opinions shared within this podcast are my own or those of my guests, and in no way represent the views of the company or companies that I or we work for. All stories, events, and tales shared within this episode may or may not have happened in the manner in which they are told. They may or may not have even happened at all. The details have been changed to protect the innocent and the guilty alike. This is Squawk Identity. You're listening to Squawk Ident, an aviation podcast dedicated to the journey and the challenges surrounding the life and career of Aviator Tony, an airline pilot currently flying for a legacy airline with close to 20 years on the flight line. This is episode 13 of Squawk Ident, recorded on the 9th of December 2019, from the Aviator Studios somewhere in Southern California. On this very special episode of Squawk Ident, I will outline how my recurrent flight training went and what was expected. I also had the opportunity to interview a former student of mine that I ran into at the training hotel. We will discuss how his progression led him to a position as a 737 first officer at Legacy Airlines. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show right after a brief word from our sponsors. episode uh, about a week ago last week i just got back actually yesterday from recurrent training last week we talked about it that i was going to be going to my recurrent training cycle for legacy airlines and we also explained that uh, at legacy it's a nine month and an 18th month cycle meaning every nine months i find myself back at the schoolhouse uh, refreshing all the emergency procedures and the systems knowledge that is required for my type rating, which is on the Airbus A320 family, the 319, the 320, and the 321. And Legacy Airlines owns quite a bit of those airplanes. And furthermore, they have many different configurations for each type. So depending on, you know, the engine type, the configuration type, the winglets versus non-winglets or sharklets, they call it, uh, on the Airbus uh, versus non-sharklet. Um, you know, it, it just depends on which airplane you are, that you have different limitations and and a few procedural changes, but for the most part, because it's a common type, you know, most of the flying and, and most of the procedures are very much the same. So we have to go to the schoolhouse every nine months to do recurrent training and they break it up into two sections it's what they call an r9 and what they call an r18 now i was there for an r18 which meant uh it was uh, a different group of systems that we have to review and study for also uh, it means that when i'm in the simulator a lot of the things we do are the same 
maneuvers, validation, emergency procedures, single engine landings and approaches, and single engine uh, departures. Uh, so that is pretty much the same. And they also review uh, critical terrain and wind shear avoidance and those kind of things as well, as they do every nine months. However, the way we go about doing it and the particular type of approaches and the way they handle validating that is a little different because each nine months you have a little bit of a different emphasis on what your training is about. So my training journey began uh, the day before training, the day before I was scheduled for training. And I had to catch a flight from, I actually was able to catch a flight out of a, a more local airport. I didn't have to drive all the way to LAX to, to get to the training hotel, uh, the training center. Um, I was able to fly out of a more local airport, go directly into Dallas, Fort Worth, where our training facility is. It's a huge campus, and it was really exciting to see all the changes that have been happening there over the past, uh, well, over a little bit over a year and a half. And the whole campus is being remodeled and reshaped. New buildings are going up, new parking structure. Uh, you know, they have bicycles all over campus right now where anyone that's on the campus can hop on these bikes and ride around from building to building. And it's such a, a big place now and it's almost unrecognizable. But the flight training center uh, or the flight academy, as we call it, uh, is relatively unchanged. There's definitely a lot of construction going on and some development uh, changes there, but for the most part, the simulators, they don't move very easily, so they're still in the same spot in the same buildings and the classrooms as well, so it wasn't too big of a deal. But with more and more people coming through the training center, it's getting crowded, which is good news for all you young aviators that are looking for progression into a mainline carrier. You know, keep keep studying, keep flying, and you're going to get there because these retirements that are happening in the next 10 years are astronomical. I don't think the industry has ever seen these kind of numbers before. As I mentioned, I had to fly in uh, the day before. I got to the training hotel, and as I was having dinner and enjoying a nice refreshment, I heard someone call my name. They said, Tony, and I turned around, and I was this, you know, who's this calling my name? And I saw it was a friend of mine. As a matter of fact, he was a former student from when I was flight instructing, Jean-Michael. And it was such a nice pleasure to see him there at the training center. Now, the first time I saw him at the training center was nine months ago, where in a very similar fashion, he saw me there in the lobby and called my name. And, and I just I recognized him immediately. I said, oh, my God, Jean-Michael, how are you? And he says, oh, I'm great, I'm great. I'm here on my initial training. I said, oh, initial training for the regional that they share the same hotel? No, no, no. I got a job at Legacy Airlines. I'm going to be on a 7-3. And I thought, wow, this is amazing. You know, I can remember when you were 16 years old and we were talking about, you know, getting you endorsed for your solo flight. And here you are, not, not many years later. This is great. And so the last time we were in training together, we got to sit down and hang out and, and have dinner. And, and here we were again, nine months later, uh, he was there for his 
what they call R9 or nine-month cycle, and I was there for my R18. And uh, so we got together, and after dinner, we sat down with a little bit of time on our hands and did a nice informal interview on his journey and how he got from a little kid just wanting to learn how to fly. And one of my you know, very first students in the whole progression of my career, and here he was, you know, my counterpart at the Legacy Carrier. And it was just an amazing journey to talk about. And I'll have that interview for you a little bit later in the show. But let's talk about recurrent training. So day one of recurrent training at Legacy Airlines is set up as a ground school environment. So we started out the day, uh, my particular group uh, started out uh, 8 o'clock in the morning on day one uh, for what they called RGS, Recurrent Ground School. A lot Pilots love acronyms. I don't know what it is. There's probably, I don't know, 100,000 acronyms <laughs> in the system for, for recurrent uh, training and, and aviation and, uh, you know, aerodynamics, everything has acronyms, acronyms, and you can't get them straight. But so we were there for RGS, for Recurrent Ground School. And first thing we did was a new class that they're trying out now, which is called Joint Training. And what they did is they brought in a group of flight attendants and put them together with the group of pilots that were there for training. And we had a joint class where we talked about uh, a topic that I just discussed over in episode 12, which is crew resource management and threat and error management. Uh, basically, we're trying to break down the barriers of communication that are often had between the cabin crew and the flight deck crew. So we got to have a couple of discussions on how we can better communicate amongst each other while we're at work and on the line. After that class, we had a class on systems, and we talked about company procedures and policies, and we also discussed a little bit about where to find all this information. I mean, we have these electronic kit bags where if we printed out every page of manuals that are in those tablets, I mean, it would be a stack four feet tall. It's amazing. And you're not expected to know every single word or page that's in that manual. It's more there as a reference. And one of our instructors actually had a very good way of talking about it. Someone in the class had uh, been complaining about looking up policies and procedures and having a hard time finding everything. And he said, look, it's like having those giant collections of Encyclopedia Britannicas that we used to have when we were kids. And obviously there's a whole generation that has no idea what I'm talking about here, but you know, we used to have these big Encyclopedia Britannicas. People would go door to door and sell them. And, you know, I had a, a set, a volume uh, in my house and that was our Google. There was no typing it into a computer. You, you went to the, you know, 20, 25 books that were two to three inches thick, each sitting on the, uh, the family bookcase and you would pull out by letter, you know, the topic you're looking for, and you would reference it and you would look through like you do in a dictionary, another, <laughs> another uh, piece of material that a lot of the younger generation 
really don't know much about because they could just, again, type it up in Google and get a definition. But, you know, you'd have to go look things up. And from there, they'd give you a brief synopsis on what you're you're looking into and give you some reference material where you could find information. Well, the EFB is meant nowadays to be handled the same way, where you type in keywords in the search bar and it will give you 10 or 15 different references to go and look this stuff up because the same subject could be in three or four different places in the same manual. So that was really what that class was all about. After that, we had uh, some more classes throughout the day, which included emergency drills, emergency equipment, um, how to open and close cabin doors from the inside. That's not something that pilots normally do. So, you know, every nine months we're trained on that so that we're current in the event that we have to use those doors and evacuate or even just ferry an airplane and get an airplane from point A to point B where it's just the pilots and someone's got to arm at least one door with a slide in case something happens you need to evacuate. So how do you do that? And that's what we're trained on. And that was the extent of day one. Now, day two was simulator training. Now, they call that uh, RTS, or recurrent training in the simulator. And that day was jam-packed with maneuvers and procedures, emergencies. So we did everything from uh, takeoff with really gusty winds, uh, landing gear, not normal, um, some kind of fault or error would come up. And then we ended up doing a VOR approach with gusty landings and then uh, a localizer approach, another landing, bounce landing recovery techniques. Uh, we did non-normal flight controls. We did RNAV RNPs. I mean, you name it, we did it. Engine failures, V1, V2, second stage, engine fires, uh, loss of engine thrust, single engine drift down, maneuvers, upset maneuvers, stalls, uh, slow flight, all the things that you're pretty much trained from day one as a private pilot. Well, we're here doing it in a 10 plus million dollar simulator, doing the same thing in an airplane that typically weighs about 150,000 pounds. So it was definitely an exciting experience to sit in that sim. But it's also nerve wracking because it's training and although it's not really a major Jeopardy event, you, you want to do well. You want to get your call-outs right. And this isn't day-to-day -day operations. This is emergency procedures, things that you probably only do once every nine months. Or at least you hope you only do these things once every nine months when you're in a simulator and not in the actual airplane. So that's what day two is. It's just maneuvers, training. It's pretty low-key. And my partner and I, who was a fellow aviator out of Los Angeles, was a captain. Um, he and I both met each other for the first time right there in the briefing before the simulator event. Uh, you get about an hour and a half briefing, you talk about what you're going to do. And um, it, it went really well. So after that first night, there was a little bit of pressure that came off. And you know, went back to the hotel, got in pretty late because of our time slot. We had a, a later time slot for the sim. And uh, the next morning, uh, got up, had some breakfast, got a good run in over around the uh, Dallas area. And when I got back to the hotel, I studied probably a good three or four hours. 
nothing major, just reviewing, again, procedures and callouts so I could polish up any of the missed calls that I had the night before. And that took me into day three. Now, day three is a little bit different. It's more of a kind of a Jeopardy situation. And the reason it is such is because this is the day you're getting evaluated. So you don't have a sim instructor in the sim. You have an actual check airman. And it consisted of uh, a briefing before the, the, the actual event. And, and the event was actually two uh, stages. The first stage is what they call RVA or recurrent maneuvers validation. Now, they're validating that you can perform the maneuvers, get the callouts, the procedures, the flows, and you get them down correctly and you're proficient in your ability to do so. All the same maneuvers we did the day before, but now you're you're being judged on what you do. Do you do you make the callouts? Do you say the right thing, the right profile? Um, do you do the memory items correctly or the flows correctly? Do you run through the emergency procedures correctly? Do you know what to look for, what to call out? Um, and so as long as you pretty much get everything done, uh, it's a satisfaction. Uh, you're sat complete. And that's what happened to us. You know, we both studied and came prepared. And, you know, there was a couple missed calls here and there from both of us and a couple procedural things that... Um, Actually, I was doing a second stage engine failure on takeoff. Is the first officer's evaluation on that. And so uh, lost an engine, maintained directional control, came back around, had to do a localizer, a non-coupled approach, meaning hand-flown. And the FA wants you to see, uh, see you do a single engine, hand-flown approach, localizer, non-ILS, and uh, to minimums. So I did it. And then there now the the scenario is that you have to do a go around from that. So right as you see the runway, you say landing, and you're all lined up and about 100 feet off the ground, uh, the, the mock air traffic controller, which is your check airman, says, uh, yeah, Legacy Airlines, uh, go around. There's a vehicle on the runway. And you're like, oh, okay, so you go and do a single engine go around. Now, the big deal here is you stay coordinated, maintain directional control, and get your alternate missed procedures in there. And the first time I did it, um, don't know really what happened, but I got a little bit off course. And and he said, well, you know, what happened there? I, and I said, well, I, I didn't put enough uh, rudder in there and... You know, it's, I was kind of expecting to land, I'd, and it kind of threw me a little bit. He's like, okay, no big deal. Let's just see you do it again. This time I want you to look here and here and here, and and this is how, how I want you to react. But okay. So he backed it up, and and sure enough, we did the same maneuver again. And this time, right on center line, did the go around, maintained control within like two or three degrees of my flight path, and came back around. He goes, oh, that's day and night, 10 times better. So not a real big deal, but, you know, a little bit of pressure there. And uh, that was my big kind of mess up for the day. And, um, but he said, yeah, no, you did fine. He goes, you, you do these like once every nine months. We don't expect you to be perfect from the first go of it. You know, you, you, that's why you're here. You're here to polish it up. And, and if you have any questions, we can answer them. So yeah, my check airman was really uh, just a straightforward kind of guy. And, you know, relayed back. So 
kind of took a little bit of pressure, a little bit of stress out of it. So came back and then it was the captain's turn. He ended up doing some more maneuvers, another approach, and then we took a break. So after about two and a half hours in the sim, we took a break for like 10, 15 minutes. And then we went back for what's called RAD, which is uh, defined as recurrent advanced maneuvers. Now these are uh, training, so it's not a Jeopardy event for this, but this is uh, learning how to go through your procedures and your flows when you're dealing with things like wind shear, uh, controlled flight into terrain or sea fit. That's when you're flying in the clouds and all of a sudden, for whatever reason, there's a mountain in front of you. You didn't see and the aircraft says, terrain, terrain, pull up, pull up. So you have to go through your maneuvers appropriately, rather expeditiously. These are kind of like non-memory memory items. You have to know exactly what to do. So going through all that training. And then, of course, we did some high terrain training, some drift down in, uh, training. We did some, some unusual attitudes. Yes, we still do that even at the uh, legacy carriers. Uh, doesn't matter. You're still doing unusual attitude training. And, yeah, it was a lot of fun. Uh, learned a little bit. Uh, learned a couple new techniques from our Czech airman. And at the end of it, he looked at both of us and said, thanks, guys. That was uh, a really good uh, sim session, and you know, thank you for coming prepared. And I looked at he, we looked at each other like, really? We did that? You think we did that well? He's like, no, you guys did great. You guys, you showed up prepared. I could tell you you had all your calls down, and you know, really makes my job easy. Thanks a lot. And that was really the kind of the bulk of the debrief. You know, we're expecting, oh, you missed this, you missed that, and and he did give us a little bit of debriefing as we were. Um, going through the session, but, uh, yeah, at the end of it, it was sat complete. Congratulations. You're good for nine months. And so we went back to the hotel and, and we shared a, a drink and talked about good old days and, and the events and, and, uh, yeah, had a nice night. Uh, so that's what recurrent training is all about. A couple days in this moving box that, you know, bounces you around, you're, it's a really, really expensive video game, but you're not supposed to treat it like a video game. You're supposed to treat it like the real deal because that's what we're simulating here. And uh, it was a really positive experience. I actually look forward to going back, um, but not for nine months. And that is what recurrent training is all about. While at the training hotel, I ran across a very dear and old friend. As I was beginning my career as a flight instructor, building time, getting ready to go to any airline that would pick me up, I had many students that I had the privilege to instruct. One of those was a very young man, around 15 years old when I met him. He came in about once a month for his lesson and spent the rest of his off times working around the flight center, cleaning airplanes, fueling them up, making sure they were tied down. He was a very good student to have around, always eager to listen in on any information he could get. He took his training very seriously, and we knew that someday he would go on to fly bigger and better airplanes. The fact that I got to see him at the training center nine months ago 
really just made me feel good about the fact that he succeeded in his journey. I was able to catch up with him again on this training cycle, and we sat down for an interview. This is the interview we had from the third floor of the Training Center Hotel in Dallas-Fort Worth. Well, welcome to another fine interview with Aviator Tony and Squawk Ident. I'd like to introduce a very special guest today, a recording live from Studio 319 in Dallas-Fort Worth. Here on a recurrent training, as I discussed in an earlier episode, and I came across an individual that's very special to me. When I was an instructor in Phoenix, Arizona, uh, more specifically uh, flying out of Chandler Airport, I had one of the youngest students I've ever had, an individual that came always prepared, very intelligent young man who comes from an aviation background, whose father was uh, and still is a captain flying for a legacy carrier here in the U.S., uh, based out of Phoenix. And this individual uh, came in, did some flight training with me, and I actually endorsed his very first solo. Please welcome to the show, Jean Michael. How you doing? How are you, Anthony? Happy to be here at uh, 319 Studios. <laughs> All right, man. This is pretty cool. So, you know, what an amazing adventure to, you know, have someone from your early on uh, days uh, in aviation. And you end up in the same legacy carrier. You're, you're a pretty young prodigy, a young aviator to be flying for legacy airlines with me. What can you tell me about how you got started in this adventure? What, what got you into it? Was it just because you come from an aviation family or was it something that more that drove you to it? Um, mostly it came out uh, coming from an aviation family. It as uh, we mentioned, as you mentioned, that uh, my dad flies for Legacy Airlines, and uh, since a kid, I've been traveling uh, a lot in airplanes. From uh, I was that young kid that went into the cockpit and, and uh, wanted to meet the pilots. Was eager about seeing all the bells and whistles and lights, and uh, seeing my dad as my uh, a pilot growing up since a young kid back in the nineties. Uh, um, just fell in love with aviation. Um, that's how it all started. Do you remember your first uh, trip in the airplane? Oof. You must be pretty young. Yeah, I, I probably have been very young. We traveled a lot between the island of Puerto Rico and Miami to give, visit family. Yeah. Was your dad based in Miami at the time? Or? No, we lived in San Juan, Puerto Rico. Oh, okay. Yeah, we, we lived. Uh, I lived there since I was uh, born till the age of nine. We traveled from the island back to uh, Florida. Okay, and how did you end up in the uh, Phoenix area? Well, um, at the age of nine, Dad uh, got a better flying opportunity, and uh, we went. Um, we ended up relocating to Phoenix, Arizona. Okay, and uh, that's where it came about moving. So he moved all of us. Yeah. So you ended up in Phoenix at at age nine. You went to grade school out there. That's correct. And uh, was when was your first ride in an airplane? where you were at the controls. Do you remember that? I do remember. Uh, um, back then, my uh, 
we were already living in Phoenix. Um, we visit San Juan over the summer, and my dad would grab about a week a week off um, to come down and share time with us because we were out of school. Um, he had a friend um, down in Puerto Rico, and he he helped get his commercial license. So I was that kid. Um, he would rent a one seventy two, and I was that kid that was sitting in the back while dad and a friend. Well, dad helped his friend get his commercial pilot's license. So he was giving uh, a little bit of flight, training, flight to, training to a friend of his, and you had the opportunity to observe. To observe. Wow. So um, the next day, he gave me a surprise at the age of eight, barely, I would say, four feet. Um, we rented a, one set, a 152 at his old flight school in Isla Grande. And uh, I remember I, I needed two sofa cushions literally to barely see the dash because i couldn't reach the paddles nor i could see over the dash yeah and uh, that was my first flight with my with my dad in uh in an actual airplane wow it's amazing and was he flying for his former legacy carrier at the time yes he was flying yeah. for his former legacy carrier yeah. yes so you, that was your first experience that was in puerto rico that's correct yeah and then so you came over to phoenix and you know i can remember meeting you when you're first coming into the uh, flight center. We used to work for, uh, now defunct, but, uh, uh, you know, it was a wonderful experience at the time uh, while they were in business. It was a tailwind flight center. That's correct. Yeah, and we met there. And uh, your dad, was he friends with the owner? Or, or how did he know for you to go there? Well, how got you in the door there? Um, no, we dad didn't know um, the owner. Um, we... I always want to bug them uh, constantly that if I had good grades at school, I uh, I would want to continue flying. And uh, he told me, that's okay. You can only go, but only once a month because of my age. I was relatively young, starting at 14. Wow. Uh, and uh, Chandler Airport is uh, was close to my house, about 10 minutes. And the uh, first school we stumbled was Tailwind Flight Center. That's where we... So you walked in and... I walked in as a said brand new student, and I want to. When can I start? How old my... were you when you first walked in there? Well, around fourteen. Were you so fourteen? Was that the minimum age you can you can uh, get a student pilot certificate? Or yeah, you can get a, your student pilot certificate around fourteen. Um, I, I remember um, the secretary back then. They had a secretary saying, "Oh, you can only you can get your student pilot at fourteen, which was your medical." But, you know, you can only solo when you're 16. Right. Right. I actually, I remember that. Yeah. You were, was it on your birthday or was it soon right after their birthday? It was soon right after my birthday. Yeah. I remember that. Yeah. I, uh, I, re I remember the day clearly. Um, I remember it was a high overcast, light rain, and the winds were calm. And we did some touch and goes. And, uh, and I remember you, Anthony, saying, Yep, yeah, no, today you ain't going to solo, nope. And I know because I knew I was going to solo that day. And he's like, no, don't think about it. Let's just go do touch and goes. And I remember the third touch and go I did, or the full stop taxi back. Um, you got off the airplane and said, this is it. Yep. So I told you you weren't going to do it because I saw you were a little nervous. You've been thinking nervous. about it all night. Yep. And, uh, so I said, no, nope, you're not going to do it today. And you kind of, uh, you, you actually took a breath. 
I took a break. And uh, and then I liked what I saw. You were doing really well, and and I knew okay, he's he's got it. So I hopped out of the airplane with my handheld, right? And you went out and did your three uh, full stop uh, taxi backs, right? And you got your first solo endorsement. I got my first solo endorsement uh, that day. And uh, to be exact, did my three full stop taxi backs on 2-2 right at Chandler, Arizona. There you go. And what year was this? 2000 and 2005 De- December 17 2005 Wow down to the date right yeah and did you get the uh, solo shirt uh, I must say Oh I sure did Yeah yeah uh, you got yeah. some nice drawing on there some young uh, flight instructor took care of you didn't oh, he Yeah so when I landed um, coming off uh, taxiway uh, I believe pop I exited straight into the tailwind ramp um, you were waiting and uh we did a celebratory. I was waiting for the cold bucket of ice, but <laughs> sorry, but but no, no, it was. I knew it was tradition to cut the tail of the white shirt, which I was wearing that day. Yeah, which was probably soaked in sweat. But hey, that's that's blood, sweat, and tears, right? That's so true. here you are. You uh, you did your first solo, two thousand and five. Now in two thousand nineteen, you're a seven thirty seven first officer. For a major airline in the United States, your journey is very interesting because that's a pretty quick progression. What can you tell me about that? So, you know, you got your rating and I know you kind of, you worked at the airfield for a little bit, try to, you know, get the finances to to get more flight time and get your ratings done. And somewhere around 2006, I kind of left the picture towards the end of that year. And I know there's some other flight instructors that you uh you had uh giving you instruction including our very own mr roger and uh yeah captain roger from uh episode was it 10 episode 9 i think episode 9 i think it was 9 yeah so uh captain roger uh, was your flight instructor for a while and how many more endorsements did you get out of uh that Uh, service there yeah i got after that i got three more endorsements okay so you got your instrument um, I got my instrument, um, and in my commercial, commercial single. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then what, where did your path take you after that? Um, my path afterwards, I got my commercial, uh, single, then I went, got my multi and then got my certified flight instructor, which is our CFI. Okay. And, uh, got my CFII right afterwards because, uh, I veered off after, you know, our part ways of. 2006 i went to a four-year college mm-hmm. the university of north dakota there you go so you went to und you did the aviation program there and how was that experience oh it it was phenomenal um from being a, a island boy born in puerto rico being tropical weather then leaving then living in arizona which is a hot dry desert to up north to the tundra of north dakota i mean yeah it was a it was a interesting Some winter operations in general aviation, man. Yeah, talk about trial by fire. Oh yeah, definitely. I uh, never saw so much snow and ice in my life. <laughs> well, so that's hilarious. So, but you got through it very well. I I got through it. Um, I I did have a good education experience. Um, I had fun, and it prepared me very well for the career that I always wanted to have as a kid. Yeah. Yeah. And made your parents very proud, I'm sure. Yeah. 
Yeah, especially your dad. Especially dad was very proud and uh and it, it sold my mom and my three siblings. Yeah. And so, you know, you, you graduate from UND. What'd you do next? So uh, I graduated from UND uh, in May 2010 and went down to South Florida. Okay. Um, because as a kid, I was, I, since I traveled a lot between the islands of Puerto Rico and Florida and Miami, I was wanted to live in South Florida and I wanted to try it. Okay. So is that where you did your flight instructing? I did. Yeah, I was a flight instructor down okay. in, uh, in, in South Florida. And how long did you do that? I did that for about two years. Okay. And I was able to um, fly down in, in South Florida and all across the state. And I was able to become a multi-engine instructor. Okay. And your students, were they primarily uh, American students or did you do international students there? Um, a mix of both. I had some uh, local students, which were, you know, lived in Miami. Then I had international students, which are uh, South America students, uh, primarily from Colombia, Panama. Um, we had some from the Bahamas. Yeah. yeah so, but uh, most of my students were, were locals. Yeah. And so you did your time there and talk about that transition that you did from becoming a flight instructor, moving down to South Florida, getting your time in. And was that primarily in in Cessnas or Pipers or Yep. Um I flew Cessnas uh, primarily because my school was uh back Cessna Pilot Center. Mm -hmm. And uh it was primarily on Cessnas the uh the twin engine side I had to be more open because I flew Senecas, Aztecs, Dutches and having a knowledge of four or five different multis is different but primarily Cessna. Yeah, but that uh, also you know, learning all those uh, independent aircraft gave you quite a bit of a leg up when it came to, you know, learning bigger, faster, more high-performance airplanes. Because now you're you're learning multiple airplanes, multiple limitations and and procedures, and I think that that actually bodes well for this aviation career. A lot of people they go to these flight schools and they learn one airplane and they do, you know, three four hundred hours in two or three tail numbers, and then they get out there and they go, oh, you're rated, congratulations, go out and, and become an instructor. And then you have to get an airplane that you might have never flown before, get checked out, and then you're like, okay, you're an instructor now. So it's actually wonderful to hear that you, you know, you, you practiced, taught, and, uh, and have under your belt all those different flight uh, types. And so... So you were instructing. How did you make the move into the next step? Well, um, being a flight instructor for two years, um, you know, I got my hours very slowly. And uh, I got to a point that I felt I need to, I always dreamed to be an airline pilot. And that bug was still there. Um, I wanted to pursue the next big goal, which was fly for a regional or an airline. And uh, the way I did it is I, I um, South Florida has about four or five airports across the East Coast. And uh, I kept going business to business, dropping resumes and making uh, myself out there available. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, uh, I stumbled upon uh, a regional carrier, uh, which is today a 121 airline, uh, Silver Airways in Fort Lauderdale. And uh, they received me with... Uh, with open arms. Um, I received uh, a call about five days after I dropped a resume. Oh, wow. And uh, they asked me if I can come and interview on July 
believe July 5th. Remember that day, July 5th of 2012. And uh, I was offered a class date that same day if I would start um, next Monday morning mm. without a hesitation. I said, yeah. Wow. So you you ended up at Silver Airways. And what did you get typed in? I flew, um, I flew a Beach uh, 1900. Um, I got, that was my first uh, aircraft type, um, 19 seater, uh, twin turbo prop. Uh, we called it the Mighty Beach. So it was a Ferrari you know, of disguise, pretty much. Um, I flew the, uh, the 1900 up in the uh, Cleveland network, uh, essential air service. So we linked the Cleveland hub, Cleveland International, with cities, small town cities in throughout Pennsylvania, upstate New York, and West Virginia. Okay. So how did you do that for two years? I did that for about a year and a half. year and a half. Because of uh, they closed the they closed the satellite uh, base, or they closed the base in Cleveland. Mm, okay, and so what was next after that? After that, I was able to bid for the Saab three forty, which was the the new toy in town. Yeah. And uh, when we all got displaced, um, I had three choices: either go to Fort Lauderdale, um, Orlando, or Tampa. And uh, I wanted always to try a new city, so uh, me and my wife wanted to try Tampa. And so Tampa is where you ended up settling down. Tampa's the new home where I ended up settling yeah. down and where I'm settled in right now. And so the Saab, uh, how long did you fly that? Uh, the Saab was, uh, I flew the Saab pretty much roughly four years. Um, I did uh, one year as an FO and, and three as captain. Nice. So, and do you have any uh, experiences that really stand out while your time there that you're willing to share? Of course. No, no, no. <laughs> I, I'm willing to share anything. Um, I just got so many. Um, one of my neat experiences I always enjoyed is uh, I was I had the wonderful opportunity to become a line check airman, and uh, just having I always wanted to go back to those roots of teaching. So when I, I was awarded line check airman with a bunch of buddies of mine in my class that we all upgraded together, um, the rewarding experience is receiving a young first officer off a of sim and seeing their face for the first time they're going to go fly the airplane. Yeah. And they look back and see the rows of passengers and a flight attendant and they're actually physically sitting in the airplane. Their face is priceless of enjoyment. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you can you know that feeling because you you know we've all kind of gone through that you know first time on an airplane first real major airline you know turboprop what have you and it really starts to make all the struggle all the financial hardship kind of worth it you know going through flight school and flight training and having difficult schedules and dealing with weather in a small ga airplane and students that you know some of them come prepared um and, and of course you can i'm sure attest to it's always a pleasure to have someone that comes and they're prepared and they're ready to go versus someone who just shows up and expects you to kind of hand them all the answers and be like, Oh, I don't need to know that. And actually you do. So, you know, now here you are as a Czech airman for silver airways on the stop. And you did that for three years. Um, I did, I did check airman for one year, for one year. Uh, Captain okay. S three. Yeah. Captain S three. So, and what, 
allowed you to progress from Silver Airways forward? What did, what happened? After, you know, being a, a Czech Airman for a year and uh, I always wanted to continue there, um, I always keep looking up in the sky and wanted to reach my next goal, flying a, flying above, you know, turboprop altitudes, I, like sure. I call it. And I, I wanted to fly faster and, you know, I wanted to fly a jet. And um, going through extensive uh, resumes and, and applying at various airlines, um, I had the wonderful opportunity uh, to uh, work for JetBlue. Ah, so uh, you applied. Did you go to any kind of job fairs or anything with them? Or I sure did. Um, not only I applied, I went to uh, various uh, job fairs. I went to uh, OBAP, Organization of Black Aerospace Professionals. Mm -hmm. um, attended various job fairs with them. I'm actually a member as well. And uh, just throughout the years of applying and going to job fairs, um, I received a, a video interview followed by an invite to interview at the uh, at their Orlando uh, facility in oh, Orlando, nice. Florida. Yeah. So how long did that process take from when you started really putting your resume out there to the point where they called you in for a video interview? Did that take a long time? It, it, take, it took a little bit. Because I, I understand they they have a lot of applications out there. Um, it roughly took me about a year um, applying. But uh, once you apply and update and going through the job, it took me roughly about a year. So you recommend updating your, your resume with uh, the online carriers as much as possible then? Frequently. Yeah. Don't let it go dormant. Uh, you know, I hear guys say, oh, I have it dormant for about six to a year. Updated about, I would recommend twice every month or monthly. Oh, really? To yeah. every couple of weeks or every, every couple two weeks. to three weeks. Yeah. And so, um, on top of that, with your experience with the job fairs and uh, with your experience with OBAP, um, what really do you think made your resume stand out among the other resumes? Well, I mean, I would say it would stand out for from other resumes is um, my years of experience um, throughout uh, the years of aviation in aviation I've I've had, and also um, having um, would say the countless years of teaching and being a CFI, but also being a line check airman for a one twenty one carrier, and also being a captain. So the uh, pilot in command time, or what we call it today, the PIC time, yeah. um, made it um, outstanding. Not only that, I was a, I did some volunteer work as well, and I mentioned that at the bottom of my resume. Anything with extracurricular activities, because uh, they want to know recruiters and the airlines want to know who is Anthony or who is John Michael, etc. Right. And, you know, it's funny you mentioned that, and that's why I asked, is I can remember I also spent a time, as you know, um, as a, a check airman for uh, the regional airline that I was at. It's not a big deal. It's just, it just means that you have uh, enough understanding of the procedures and policies of that particular company and the aircraft type that you're typed on that you can now basically fly the airplane by yourself uh, because you're you're performing the duties of whatever seat you're uh, occupying for the for the IOE um and you're also teaching 
and instructing and really, I mean, the pilot in the other seat, whether it be a left seat captain upgrading or a new hire or someone transitioning to the aircraft for the first time, they've been typed in the airplane. That's what the simulator and the academic portion of the training is for. But then they get on the line and now they need to see it all in a cohesive place. And the only way to do that is to do it in the airplane. And we don't fly airplanes around empty. So you got passengers in the back. So Czech Airmen's responsibility is paramount. They have the, the responsibility of of not only operating the aircraft in a safe manner, according to FARs and SOPs, which are Federal Aviation Regulation and standard operating procedures of the company, but also you have to invest the time in that you're instructing the other pilot so that they don't have any questions. And by the time you're done with them, hopefully you can sign them off and they can be on their way and, and fly a safe operation on their own and know their responsibilities to do so. So it's a big deal. And, I, and I've flown with a few individuals in the past, and this is a great story that I that I often tell. Um, I was flying with a guy, and I don't know if I, I've mentioned this before in a previous episode, but I was flying with a guy, a young info, and he just he came into the cockpit and he just had an attitude like, oh, this place, you know, I've got my resumes everywhere, and I don't understand why the hell... You know, no one's calling me for an interview. It must be because I'm a white male. And if I was if I was a woman or if I was a minority, then, you know, I'd get a phone call. This is BS. And he just was going on and on and on. And after about an hour, I just I told him enough. Stop. No more. And he said, what, what are you talking about? And I said, well, you've been nonstop talking about how, you know, you are in the minority now because you're white and you've got your application out and you have your you know, a couple thousand hours of a 121 operator as second in command, and you think that because you have that, you deserve a job somewhere? I said, I used to hire people. You're a 90 percenter. And he stopped looking at me. He's like, what do you mean a 90 percenter? I'm like, a 90 percenter is someone who, you know, they're like 90 percent of everyone else. They come to work. They do the job. They do only the job. They go home. They don't think about it. They, they live their life. They're not going to do work at home. They're not getting paid for that. And when you look at the resume, they've got the hours, but it looks like 90% of the other resumes. It's the extra 10% that you put into it. You know, whether you're volunteering, whether you're doing the organization, whether, you know, you're, you're um, participating in, in human resources events and hiring practices, or even donating time at your local, you know, flight center. All that little bit, the stuff that you put at the bottom of the resume, in the notes, in the extracurriculars, that's what stands out. That's what puts you above. And then above the 10 percenters is the one percenters. These are the guys that were check airmen or flight director uh, operations, um, you know, guys that were, you know, in the, in the business side of the company, the, the, the chief pilots, the assistant chief pilots. And these guys, you know, clearly are going the extra mile. And these guys, they put their application out really wherever they want. And for the most part, they'll at least get looked at. So you kind of went down that road, and I commend you for it. Commend you? Is that the right word? Commend? Yeah, yeah, yeah I commend. Yeah, I'll edit it somewhere all out right. post. <laughs> so I commend you for it. And so what I wanted to ask you is how, so you went to JetBlue, and you got typed in the Airbus. Uh, I got topped in on the Embraer 190. Oh, you got the 190. I got the 190. Okay, so you, you go to you go to JetBlue, and now you're a 190 typed pilot. And God, was that like a big step from it was a big Silver step. Airways? Oh yeah, 
Yeah, what was the difference really? Well, I picture we were flying that silver uh, Saab 340, which is a turboprop. We stayed below 25,000 feet and, um, with a technology back in the, let's say, 90s to a completely different airplane that flies faster than 250, definitely be higher than 25,000 feet. And the automation. Yeah, all glass, all, all glass. Yeah, very nice. What's vertical navigation, what's lateral navigation, ah, yeah, yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's different. And not only that is uh, the Saab sits low to the ground versus the 190. It's, you've flown Embraer's, you know how pretty much flaring from yeah, much higher than you used higher to. Higher than you used to. So you get you have to really get that sight picture down. That's totally true. Yeah. So you you've done that, and how long were you at JetBlue? I was at JetBlue for about ten months. Ten, oh, not very long at all. Not very long at all. Wow. Okay. So and how did you? So you were there at JetBlue. Were you you were still on probation? Well, JetBlue. The good thing about JetBlue is you. I believe you're only in probation while you're in training. Oh, really? Once you leave, once you pass your LOE uh-huh. and your IOE. You were technically uh, not a probation pilot. Wow, that's <laughs> you hear that? No, JetBlue. That's where it's at. So you're no longer on probation, and you're there. You're good nine months. And where were you based? I was based in New York, Kennedy. Okay, so oh, you got the New York flying. I got the New yeah. York, and you're doing Kennedy to San Juan. I was doing yeah, mostly Kennedy, San Juan, um, via Fort Lauderdale, because okay. uh, we did Kennedy, Fort Lauderdale, Fort Lauderdale, San Juan. But uh, most of my flying was done in, in the Northeast. Oh, okay. So you're doing mainly the Northeastern. The Northeastern, like. Time. Yeah. Yeah. So JetBlue, nine months. And then, and I know the ultimate goal was always to fly the same company that your father That's always flies for. And with mergers and acquisitions and all these things that have happened over the last decade, um, you ended up applying to Legacy Airlines. That's correct. And we, we know Legacy Airlines is to protect ourselves from uh, the fact that we don't represent the company in any way, shape, or form. Uh, so we've made this uh, virtual airline called Legacy Airlines. And so you applied at Legacy, and how did that go? I applied at Legacy for for many years, and uh, since back when I was at Silver. And uh, like I, I highly enforce is update your resumes, update your application. And uh, I would say about eight months being in JetBlue, um, Legacy Airlines, um, decided to uh, give me a, an interview. Wow. So how did that interview process go? Uh, the interview process was very, very relaxed and fun at the same time. And I say it in that way because I was received with open arms. Um, they just wanted to get, They just wanted to get to know me. Um, I was a great guy to fly with on a four-day trip. Yeah. So uh, you had, uh, did you have a video interview first, or was it just come in and come talk to us down at the training? Um, good point. Um, I did have a video interview, which um, they'll send you an email, and you do a video interview at home, self-paced. They do give you a timeline, I believe, about a week to complete. Mm-hmm. Um, once that was done, within about three to four days, you'll You'll get a notification, uh, another email inviting you to come to interview for Legacy Airlines at the corporate headquarters. Nice. So you you went ahead and went to your interview. Was it as intimidating as everyone mentions? Uh, I mean, 
you always go to an interview nervous. That's normal. But um, it, it was a bit intimidating, but not too much because the recruiters and the environment was very welcoming. Okay. So they were pretty laid back. And pretty laid back, yeah. And try to make you feel as relaxed as possible. Did, did they give you like a, a giant ATP exam or anything? No, no, no. no. Uh, they just gave me, um, you know, a computer-based training uh, test, testing. Um, they just wanted to, um, that was the first day pretty much. Yeah. And then the second day was uh, a formal interview, you know, with your suit and tie ready to go. And that's where you meet. And talk to pilots, okay, which are your recruiters. Yeah, so you have some captains and first officers that are there in the in the uh, in the recruitment center, and they're asking you questions. Did they give you a lot of personality type questions or more uh, technical knowledge? No, just personality questions, and uh, they just want to get to know you. Um, pretty much go from the time you start aviation up to how you got here. Yeah, and more personality questions. Um, of how would handle certain situations, which is normal. They just wanted to see your your critical thinking process and uh, how would you would deal with certain situations. Um, no technical, um, yeah. which was I was surprised. Um, but with your countless years of experience in the aviation industry and how you built on from building blocks since your first day, um, they know that you are a sharp individual. At yeah. work. Well, you got past all the initial steps and, you know, you're, they told me the same thing, you know, and, and I came through a different road, um, uh, or a different avenue, uh, through the program that I came on. So I didn't, uh, have to go through a lot of the same processes that you did. Uh, but from day one, uh, that's the one consistent here at, at Legacy is it was just always, we want you here. We're glad you're here. And, you know, you've made it, you're here and all you have to do is show up, study, and come prepared. And, you know, if you need a little extra help, we'll give it to you. And completely different mentality from 20 years ago. Oh, yeah. You know, 20 years ago, it was like, okay, look to your left, look to your right when you aren't going to make it through training, so study up. So, yeah, definitely a positive uh, thing. So you you went through your training and, you know, you, you passed your your interview. And then I think they do they invite you back the next day for a medical or... Well, um, after, after passing my interview, um, we all went home. Um, I, I went home back to Tampa. And uh, I didn't hear from them for about, uh, let's say about a couple of days. And uh, I remember the day I got notified is uh, I didn't get notified personally. Oh, no? No. The recruiting department knew my dad works at Legacy. Uh-huh. So they wanted to do something special. Um, they called my dad, gave him the great news that I was hired on board. Um, dad thanked him and uh, thanks for giving me the opportunity. And I was remember I was at a, out on a lake because there's many lakes in Florida. Sure. <laughs> and uh, dad calls me and says, hey. What are you doing? I'm like, nah, Dad, I'm here by the lake. He was just admiring it and uh, doing some hiking around it. He goes, oh, oh, I got some good news for you. I'm like, oh, so what do you got to tell me? He goes, oh, Legacy just hired you. Uh. <laughs> and I'm like, Dad, are you kidding me? He goes, no, 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 I'm, I'm not kidding you. Yeah, Legacy hired you. Wow. I just want to say I'm proud of you. 
Wow. And so when you get hired at Legacy, you have a little bit of a ceremony, uh, I think day two or day three of, of Indoc, where they have a dinner and they invite you to come, you know, dressed for, uh, dressed to your best for dinner and you get to invite someone. Did you have your dad? Was your mom there too? Or No, I only had my dad. Just your dad. And, and normally the uh, director of flight ops pins your wings on your shirt or hands you the wings and do a little photo op and you officially become part of the family here. And I understand if your family member is a pilot here, something special happens. What can you tell me about that? Oh, um, the director of ops gave the wings to my dad and dad uh, pinned the wings on me. Wow. That and day. so your dad, how many years has he left? Dad, um, I believe he has seven well, six six more years left for now. For now, because we know that the rumor is, and and it's just a matter of time at this point that because of the looming increased retirements, mandatory retirements that the FAA has projected uh, on a American or U.S. based uh, airlines, uh, we're talking thousands every year coming up just next year, two twenty. 21, I think, uh, at Legacy, there's going to be a, a thousand retirements. Um, and that's just one. Uh, now we're talking all the other carriers. So H65, which is the current mandatory retirement with the FAA, the rumor is we're going to mimic a lot of what some of the other uh, countries are doing, like Japan, and change it to 67 and a half. And from my understanding, the writing's already being documented that three years after it changes to 67 and a half, it probably changed to 70 because from what I understand, the analysis that they had to perform uh, wanted to see what is, what statistically are the chances for someone, if they can make it to 65, can they make it to 67 and, and furthermore, 60, uh, 70. So from what I understand, if you can make it to 67 and pass an FAA medical, you can make it to 70. So um, if not 65. So uh, there's a good chance that your dad might be around for at least 10 more years, if not more. So uh, which is good news for us, too, because I know you've done it. You've looked at the projection on the website on the company website. Your retirement seniority number is drum roll, please. Number two. My number? Yeah, it's seniority number when you retire. Oh, I'll be uh, number 35. Number 35 in the company. You know what that means? You could sit at home all day long, <laughs> fly one, uh, who knows what, 797, you know, by then, uh, one trip a month. One trip a month. You know, and around, around the planet, and then you're done. Oh, my God. <laughs> seniority matters ladies and gentlemen seniority matters well you know this has been quite a great opportunity to not only run into you the second time because last time i was here nine months ago for training i saw you and it was the first time i saw you in in absolute years right that's correct uh, yeah last time i saw you was uh yeah tell when yeah when uh i i received my private pilot and uh, we part ways there. That was the last time. Yeah. I mean, I, I was off to the regional airline that I was flying for. And then you know, 13 years later, ventured on over to Legacy Airlines. And here I am 
not much more senior than you. I think I got hired um, about nine months before you. Yeah, maybe? about yeah. nine months before you. Nine yeah, months. so it just goes without saying. I've said it before, and I'll say it again, and I'll probably say it for the rest of my career that always treat the people around you well because you never know when the student becomes the chief pilot That's or true. the chief pilot becomes the student. So, yeah, it's a small community, even though there are tens of thousands of people. Um, it, it is definitely a community where you want to treat each other well, That's even right. if you don't get along, uh, because you never know. You never know, know. That could be your boss one day or you could be theirs or vice versa or whatever. Um, but man, it's so good to run into you Same here, in Andrew. training. Now, tomorrow's a big day for both of us, right? That's correct. Yeah, we're both going to be in the simulator. You're uh, going through a nine-month cycle. So That's first nine-month cycle first in the simulator or current nine-month. Um, and I'm going through my 18th-month cycle, which is the second part. Um, you have to do maneuvers tomorrow, as do I. Uh, you on the 7-3. That's correct. And and myself on the on the bus, on the Airbus. And it's really an opportunity to work out the kinks in your emergency procedures, your memory items, and your uh, flows. So it's time to study. That's correct. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, forgive the audio. We're, uh, we're experimenting with a new handheld uh, here. And I had problems with it last time. These, these handhelds are a little complicated, you know. And, hey, uh, Welcome to Podcasting 101, right? Um, but, uh, you know, you can hear the airplanes overhead in the studio here because we are on the direct flight path of the Dallas-Fort Worth International Airport. And, uh, of course, you can hear uh, plumbing and all this stuff. So the studio is not a very good one. I don't recommend Studio 319 in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, no. So uh, reporting <laughs> from the Atrium Hotel with my good friend and a former student now uh, airline first officer on a 737. Amazing, yeah, amazing journey. And this is what this podcast is all about, is to talking to individuals about their journey on how to get from being a little kid in Puerto Rico with a dad who flies for a living to sitting in the back of a Cessna. That's true. To soloing in Chandler. All right. My first endorsement, by the way, to, yeah, my first solo endorsement. After that, I had a few more, but I mean, you were, you know, and 16 years old. I mean, come on. Talk about nervous, right? For me. And to, as a chance to see each other in, at the training hotel, you know, nine months ago. Oh, yeah, you work here too? It's like, wow, that's great. So, you know, John Michael, I wish you the very best. Congratulations. Thank you, really. Anthony. I'm happy sincerely. to see you here working together as, not only as an instructor, as a student, but also as good co-workers. Yeah, fellow aviator. Fellow and aviator and a at friend. The dream job. So, so I study up, y'all. Study up. You'll be surprised. <laughs> All right. Thank you, everyone. And again, thank you for listening to Squawk Ident. This is Aviator Tony signing out from Dallas-Fort Worth, Studio 319. Well, ladies and gentlemen, that wraps up the show. I'd like to take this opportunity to, again, thank John Michael for you know, spending the time with me and doing some great recording at the hotel 
you know, it's not always the ideal place. You can hear uh, pipes and doors and, and all kinds of things uh, at the hotel that, you know, I, I try to avoid uh, for the best quality sound that I can possibly produce for the podcast. So, you know, it's a learning experience, and that's for sure. Uh, I'd also like to take this opportunity to remind all my listeners that www.aviator tony that's alpha victor the number eight romeo tango oscar november yankee.com that is a great place to check out a little bit about myself about the podcast and now uh, coming soon within the next uh, i'd say 24 hours we're going to update the website and include cover art photos. I realize that if you're listening on some platforms, they don't include the unique cover art that I uh, try to produce every single episode. So uh, on some platforms, they only show the original cover, which is the logo. So it's a good place to check that out. I also encourage you to follow us on social media. You can follow us on Instagram or Facebook and even Twitter at Squawk Ident Podcast. I'd like to, again, thank all my listeners for all your support, and I'd love to hear your feedback. So don't hesitate to send me an email or drop me a DM on one of the social medias. And finally, I'd like to thank you all for taking the time to listen to this grateful aviator. Keep the dirty side down, be safe, and take care of each other.